continue worshiping together today, receive these words from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the 13th chapter, beginning with the first verse. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but, when, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Please remain risen and receive these words from the Gospel according to Luke, the fourth chapter, beginning in the 21st verse. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in, in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. 
but he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Let us pray. Love divine, we gather in your presence, trusting you to be who you need to be in this moment, in our lives, in our community, in our hearts. Move in and through us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be carried upon wings of spirit to land where it needs to land and to do the work that it might do. I offer it to you. Be with us now, we pray, in the power of your love and grace and help make all things new. Amen. Do you have to go to church to be a Christian? This question evidently sparked some lively conversation in the midst of our last confirmation class. And there are, I would say, at least a couple of solid responses. First, I would pose a follow-up, slightly more specific question for us to really get at what we're talking about. And that question is this. Does showing up for worship and other church activities on a regular basis make you a Christian? And let's be clear too, another just for clarification. If we're talking about Christian, if when we, when we say Christian, we mean, as we say in our baptismal liturgy, a true disciple who walks in the way that leads to life. That's what we're talking about, Christian. All right, a true disciple that walks in the way to lead, that leads to life. Okay, so back to my clarifying question. Does showing up for worship and other church activities on a regular basis make you a Christian? If we're using the definition, def, definition I said a minute ago, then the resounding answer is no. No. Going to church makes you a Christian as much as going to a garage makes you a car. It is quite possible to be a card-carrying Christian whose life has little resemblance to Jesus and perhaps even does damage to Jesus' good name. The story of what happens when Jesus goes back to his home church in Nazareth that we heard this morning is a good example of what I'm talking about. Jesus reminded the people of that congregation that God's prophetic work focused on those considered others or outsiders, implying that this would be the case for Jesus' own ministry and work. The hometown crowd could not stand the thought that Jesus wouldn't just share his gifts with them. After all, you're ours, Jesus. You belong to us. They were enraged at Jesus' implication that the miracle of his love would be offered to people whom they deemed enemies, people they despised, the people of Sidon, Syria. When Jesus went to his 
home church, to visit the adults with whom he had grown up, perhaps folks who had taught him Torah and played with him as a child, perhaps adults whom he had admired. What happened? I mean, these are folks that had been going to synagogue all those years. Well, they didn't just damage his name. They tried to kill him. They ran him right out of town into the edge of a cliff, hoping to throw him over. Somehow they had missed, even after all that time, the the teaching, the scripture about caring for the stranger and the sojourner and the prophetic call of God to do justice for the most vulnerable and that whole bit about walking humbly with God and self-giving love. In this moment, they wanted what they wanted for themselves, for their own tribe. They were looking out for themselves. But as Jesus points out and models, the Judeo-Christian story provides a stark contrast to this well-worn human tendency because, let's be honest, it's not just that church, that synagogue, that congregation over there way back when who would do that sort of thing. Jesus reminds us of what's real. The story we tell is not just about us as individuals. It's not just about me or me and Jesus. It's about we. Our faith is all about relationships. It involves caring about more than just my own needs and desires. It involves being part of a community It involves attending to the needs of the most vulnerable ones in God's creation. It means more than just caring about my own tribe, my own congregation, my own nation, my own faith tradition. It means caring for others. Full stop. These relational, communal, other-focused aspects of faith are not peripheral, to our practice as Christians. They are at the very core. And here is where we get to another response to our confirmand's conversation. In short, there is no such thing as solitary Christianity. Being a follower of Jesus means being in community with other followers of Jesus in one form or fashion. We can be spiritual without the presence of other people in our lives, but we cannot be growing as disciples, using that that definition that I shared before, without the encouragement and guidance and wisdom and accountability and friendship of other disciples. I often talk about the community of the church as the lab or the training ground for the rest of our lives. It's in faith community that we get to practice mercy, to practice compassion, to practice leadership and vulnerability, courage, to practice speaking up, or to practice holding our tongues or sharing our gifts, or honoring others' gifts. 
and all the rest. The first letter to the Corinthians was focused on helping that congregation get clear about where they needed to do some work on their practice in relationship. As Pastor Ben pointed out last week, Paul is speaking in this letter to the ways that some gifts in that congregation were being valued, some people were being valued more than others. And Paul encouraged the people in that congregation to practice a more excellent way, the way of love. We practice love when we are present in relationship and community together. You know, we can talk about love. It's very nice to talk about love. You only learn how to actually love by being in the mess of community. Weekly gatherings for worship are our most regular and certainly our broadest shared communal experience of relating, not just to God, but with one another. And for those who come among us for the first time, any time that we're gathered for worship, what people experience that we do and say and how we do it and say it and who's doing it and saying it, all of that says a lot about who we are. And for those of us who worship at Foundry regularly, everything we do in worship is an occasion for practicing our faith. One writer says that the repeated patterns and practices of Christian worship over time shape us in ways of being with God and with one another. In the repeated patterns and practices of Christian worship, we are formed and fashioned into the values and vision of the gospel. Repeated patterns and practices, it is suggested, are necessary in order to be formed into the shape that more closely resembles the kingdom of heaven. It's why it's important that we attend to what we do when we gather and how we do it, because it shapes us in a particular way. If this all makes sense, you can use all sorts of analogies. One might be a bodybuilder. If you, you know, if he wants to like develop one part of his body to, to grow or build a part of his physique, then he needs regular, repeated patterns and practices. The same movement done over and over to build strength and definition. If we want our lives to look a certain way as people, as community, then we, uh, we need to repeat patterns and practices. Spiritual disciplined habits are required to help our lives take that desired shape. And a sports team is another good example. Individuals can practice the fundamentals on their own, but the team won't play well together or accomplish their goal unless each person is consistent in team practice and each team member's gifts and strengths are valued. The repeated patterns and practices of Christian worship meant to be lively and life-giving, 
can certainly become formulaic, boring, and, well, deadly. <laughs> Has anybody ever been in worship that felt dead? The founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, was deeply concerned about this phenomenon. <laughs> he was deeply concerned that the 18th century Anglican church, of which he was a part, had devolved into empty ritualism, seemingly cut off from the life-transforming power of Holy Spirit. And Wesley's response was to organize small groups to come together and study of the Bible, to pray and to support one another in the faith, to hold each other accountable and to serve the poor together. These small groups provided a context within which folks nurtured a faith that was actually really connected to their everyday lives. And it deepened their relationship, not only with those in their group, those other people who were with them on the disciples' path, but also with the God whom they worshiped when they showed up on Sunday morning. Wesley remained an Anglican priest his whole life, and he certainly expected the members of the Methodist societies to continue to attend their Sunday worship in their parish church, but he wanted them to bring their spiritual aliveness with them into the pews to enliven the ritual with a vital and living faith in a living God. Our spiritual heritage as United Methodists, you see, is rich with a model for small group community and with worship patterns and practices that grow up out of the Anglican church from which we spring, and an intentional focus on movement of the Holy Spirit who is always at work in our daily lives and in our worship to challenge, to transform, to inspire, to make us new. There is, you might notice, a basic pattern and movement of our worship, whether you've gone to, to Christian worship in a place that was what they call high church or low church. It doesn't really matter. There's a basic movement in all of it. There is, and it sort of reflects the movement of uh, the growth in relationship with God. You are called by God to gather God's grace calls you and you come together in gathering. You're encountered by the word of God. Then you respond to that word through acts of commitment and sacrament and generosity and praise. And then you are commissioned and sent forth into the world to continue to grow and share that with others. This is the basic pattern of worship. And for those of us who plan worship, there may be times when we, by prompting of the Spirit, decide that there is within that basic pattern something extra that we think would help enliven things or invite people into a new experience. And then in any given week, something may happen on the spot, something unplanned or uncontrolled, those moments when all of a sudden Stanley's like, you know what, we're going to sing that whole thing over again because the Spirit has descended and we just need to keep going. You know, sometimes you just got to go with what is happening. You see, the thing is, is that the regular pattern 
and practice, and doing it together in community over time helps build trust, that trusted container in which spirit can show up and move in surprising ways. I'll never forget the Ascension Sunday years and years ago, when after preaching a sermon inspired by an image of Christ dancing into heaven, I had invited my friend to come and sing as a response that song that was very popular at the time called I Hope You Dance. Now, I knew in my mind that during the singing of this song, I would invite the congregation into some kind of response. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I thought maybe I'll just say you may pray or if you want to come and kneel at the altar or, you know, ponder. I wasn't sure. But I thought I would let the Spirit lead. So the time comes in the service for this thing to happen. And I got up and, you know, I really sometimes do not have a clue what I'm going to say. And I stood up and I just said, you may respond as Spirit leads. And I'll be danged if people, Emily starts singing, People got up out of their pews, paired up, and started dancing together in the sanctuary. We were like two-stepping down the aisle. I thought, oh my goodness. (laughs) Right right there on a Sunday morning. You just never, you never know what's going to happen in worship. That's all I'm saying. You see, communal ritual... Those repeated patterns and practices, whether in worship or in participation in a small group, helps create trust that allows taking risks like that. It's also important, this communal ritual is important because of its consistency. It helps us remain in relationship to God and to one another through the varying conditions and challenges of our lives, the inconsistencies of our own feelings and moods. This is why I encourage those who are grieving or those who are struggling in their faith to just try to stay connected. Stay connected in worship or with if you have a small group because those rituals help provide something constant. You don't have to feel it. I say that every Sunday. You don't have to feel it. Let others hold it for you. Let others hold you in the space. And the ritual presents and provides that constant, a place to be held. It's also been said that ritual practice is necessary for us because of our persistent amnesia, our forgetting who we are, (laughs) what we live for and why. And so we gather in small groups to remember, to share what's real in our lives and to receive encouragement and support and prayer for the journey. We're present with one another in worship to pray and to listen and to ponder and to sing our praises to God and to speak words full of poetry and mystery that call us to remember the story to remember who we are, discover who we are, and why we're here. To be reminded that it's not all just about me and my stuff. It's not just about looking out for number one, that there's rather something larger of which we are all a part, that there's hope for all our lives, no matter the circumstance. 
Perhaps the most poignant example for me of the power of communal ritual to form and shape us and to become so much a part of us that it lives in our bones is the experience of praying and singing with folks who are in various stages of Alzheimer's disease or dementia. Somehow, those repeated words and practices, the Lord's Prayer or a favorite Christmas carol, the doxology, (laughs) these things remain when so much else is lost. People may not remember who they are, the names of the people closest to them, but you start to repeat those words and somehow it is simply there formed and shaped. These rituals live in very deep places within us. They remind us of who we are, even when so much else of life has been forgotten. And finally, of course, the thing that matters most of all in life is the love that we give and we receive. Cultivating relationships as we've heard already from Lynn and Doug, this sort of going deeper in intentional relationship, caring for one another, sharing life in all its complications and highs and lows, working shoulder to shoulder for things that matter, (laughs) laughing and crying and persevering together. This is the heart of it all. Our worship and our intentional connections in relationship with one another in small groups, in classes, in ministry teams and committees and service work and all of the ways that we are connected and engaged, all of these things provide the place for us to practice living faith and hope and love. And it's only when we've been at it a while that we'll be able to create enough trust to do the really, really hard things. And Foundry, we are always trying to do really hard things. Hard things. And a lot of them all at the same time. We need these connections. We need these places of relationship and deeper trust to be able to go into those places and do the work to which we are called. In these contexts, we are formed and grow in the love and in the compassion, the generosity and the mercy that reflects the life of God revealed in Jesus. So, do you have to go to church to call yourself a Christian? No. Do you need to be part of intentional covenant community, even with all its challenges, needs, disappointments, and foibles? To be fully shaped and formed over the course of your life in the perfect love of God and the image of Jesus? That would be a yes. The good news 
is that God's faith in us hope for us, and love for us abide. The good news is that there are varieties of ways to connect in community like I was describing. And you see, God's faith, hope, and love for us, that loving presence will guide your steps and always on a path that leads to life. Thanks be to God.